This episode of The Outside Podcast is brought to you by Lake Hartwell Country, a region in the mountains of South Carolina that's one of the best adventure playgrounds anywhere. Topped into the northwest corner of the state, this is a place blessed with unique geography. Unlike most spots along the Appalachian chain, which have gently sloping mountains, here the elevation plunges more than 2,000 feet in less than half a mile. The result is the Blue Ridge Escarpment, a dramatic feature that the Cherokee tribes in the area gave a special name. That's the Blue Wall, as translated by Garfield Long Jr., a tribal linguist with the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians. With such rugged terrain, plus abundant rainfall, it's no surprise that Lake Hartwell country has incredible waterways. This includes the Chattooga River, a federally designated wild and scenic river that Outside Magazine regularly calls out as one of our favorite paddling destinations. It's one of the longest free-flowing rivers in the southeast, and it provides visitors spectacular scenery as it plummets through the mountains. Some sections offer thrilling whitewater for experienced rafters and kayakers, including the infamous Bull Sluice Rapid. But there are also tamer sections for those just getting started. There's also great trout fishing, sandy beaches, and easy access to some incredible waterfalls. To learn more about all the adventures to be found in Lake Hartwell country, from hiking and cycling to horseback riding and camping, go to lakehartwellcountry.com, because South Carolina is just right. From Outside Magazine and PRX, this is the Outside Podcast. Hey everyone, before we get started, I want to take a moment to encourage you to subscribe to the print edition of Outside Magazine. It's the engine behind the Outside Podcast, providing us with some of our most adventurous stories, including the one you'll hear today. Like thousands of other small businesses and media companies, Outside is facing the harsh realities of a sudden and unprecedented economic crisis. So if you enjoy this podcast and you want to enjoy a great magazine delivered to your home, please subscribe. We're offering special pricing now at OutsideOnline.com slash Summer Savings. Now, let's get on with the show. It's not actually the misadventure you're searching for. What it's actually all about is rising to the challenge. Something unexpected happens, and you have to think on your feet. You have to improvise. You have to make good decisions, or you die. That is Mark Jenkins, talking about the nature of wilderness expeditions. If you're not familiar with Mark, he played a very big role in Outside Magazine in the 2000s when he wrote a regular column for us called The Hard Way. Based on what you just heard him say, you won't be surprised to know that his job was to chronicle his journeys to remote destinations around the planet. War-torn mountain ranges, unexplored canyons, a literally forbidden lake in Tibet. I'm Michael Roberts, and I met Mark in the summer of 2000, shortly after I began working for Outside. He was like a real-life action figure, a climber version of Buzz Lightyear, with a square-cut jaw, a barrel chest, and an unending supply of, well, let's call it self-confidence. One memorable event, I watched him challenge an Outside editor to a pull-up contest in the middle of a restaurant that had a conveniently located metal trellis. Mark won. Being asked to write the hard way column was, for Mark, the chance of a lifetime. 
In the late 90s, he'd been writing for another magazine when Outside's then-editor, Hal Espin, called him up and said, come work for us. Uh, I don't know what you're paid, but I'll double it, and you get all expenses to go anywhere in the world every single month. Hard one to turn down. Mark had earned it. He'd grown up in Wyoming, where he developed a unique combination of mountaineering and journalism skills. He started out climbing his home state peaks, but soon found his way to Yosemite, and then international destinations. In 1984, two years after he graduated college, he was part of a team that completed the second American ascent of Tibet's 26,285-foot Shishapangma. A couple years later, he was on an expedition that attempted a new route on the north face of Mount Everest. Along the way, he started writing for local and then regional newspapers, and he became a stringer for Time magazine, based in Africa. Over the years, he completed some historic expeditions, including the first descent of the Niger River and bicycling across Siberia. Mark's writing stands out for being both muscular and intellectual. He is the rare powerhouse athlete who can craft a powerful story. And as is often the case with outside contributors, his best tales are about the trips where all kinds of things go wrong. Expeditions are a step into the unknown. You know, you hear people say, like, I'm going to go climb Rainier. I never have said that. I always say I'm going to attempt something. Nature is a, is a very unforgiving place, and things go wrong. And that's the moment at which your character and your style and your soul come out. Uh, I just find that the, the mountains force you to be the best person you can be. And sometimes they crush you. Sometimes they kill you. Okay, but not every great misadventure story is loaded with life or death consequences. In fact, sometimes it's the milder misguided journeys that offer the most lasting lessons. Which brings us to Mark's latest feature for Outside, about his rather curious quest to witness a solar eclipse from the top of a peak in the Andes. It all started a few years ago, when there was an eclipse in Wyoming, and Mark decided to check it out. He drove out to a bluff in the central part of the state, and he watched the sun disappear. And I was in the zone of totality. Now, this is special because that's when you do get a moment of complete darkness. And I have to say it was strange and provocative and and kind of entrancing. I mean, I was in a prairie, and there are lots of um, critters out there. you got, you know, rodents and birds, and everything went quiet. And it was a, a very interesting and unusual feeling, and it kind of captivated me. And I thought, you know, from a mountaineer's perspective, I wonder what it would be like to experience a total eclipse, to be in the zone of totality, but to be at high altitude. Then I looked at when would the next eclipse be, and by golly, it's, it's actually passing over the Andes. More specifically, on the evening of July 2nd, 2019, the eclipse would be passing just north of Aconcagua, the highest summit in South America, at about 23,000 feet. So Mark started poking around for an ideally positioned mountain where he could enjoy the view. I found a peak called Mahadita, where the eclipse would pass directly over. It was in the zone of totality. And I thought, you know, that might be an interesting experience. That might be fascinating. He also thought it might be a fun kind of first. Humans have been living at high altitude for thousands of years, of course, though not that high. 
most of them probably would have never been up at 20,000 feet where you need plastic double boots in a down park just to survive. So I thought, well, maybe it would be kind of a challenge and be very interesting to be, if not the first, to be one of the few humans in, in the last 200,000 years that had witnessed an eclipse from high altitude. Mark reached out to the Alpine journals that record most mountaineering expeditions to see if anyone had reported seeing an eclipse from the top of a big summit. No one had. Then I got a hold of NASA. I went through their eclipse logs and tried to basically cross-reference any expedition that anyone had done in the last hundred years to see if they could have even seen an eclipse, and I couldn't find anything. So he had his plan. What he needed next was a partner. It was very hard to find partners for these sorts of half-baked, spur-of-the-moment, off-the-cuff expeditions. But I have a number of friends who are kind of willing at any moment to throw down. And this is another unusual aspect, I think, of adventurers who are true adventurers at heart, is that they recognize the value and they will put off other parts of life, work, family, um, making money, to go in debt, to go do something crazy someplace else on the planet. So I was thinking, who am I going to ask? Well, I've got this buddy. His nickname is Large. That's right, large, as in very large. And he is. Physically, he's over 200 pounds, and he's solid muscle. He's just a big, strong guy. That's not where he gets his name from, though. He has the biggest heart of anybody I know. I mean, one time I was just going down to go ice climbing with him a couple years ago, and I was just picking him up in the morning like you do with any of your climbing buddies or your adventure buddies. And he'd made me a carrot cake, because he knew my birthday was this weekend. I mean, what kind of guy makes another guy a carrot cake? Large does sound like a sweetie. He grew up in Wisconsin, and he now runs a forest preschool near Denver. By the time Mark called him, the eclipse was just a few weeks away. But Large was in, so they bought their plane tickets, and soon they landed in Santiago, ready to roll. Well, kind of. So we are in Santiago Airport. We've already bought tickets to La Serena, which is a place on the Chilean coast. And we're planning from there to try to find some kind of truck or something like that up to this mountain. That plan was based on the relatively small amount of research Mark had done before leaving Wyoming. He'd gotten the names of some contacts in Chile who would be able to provide fuel for his mountain stove. And when he and Large got to Santiago, Mark called them up and started describing his trip. And they said, well, what are you going to do? And I said, well, we're just this peak over here. And they said, how are you going to get there? And I said, well, I thought we could just rent a truck or, you know, hitchhike. And they said, that's completely snowed in. You, you won't get within 50 miles of the mountain. <laughs> so we had to, so the trip was almost over. And we're thinking, how can we salvage this thing? And I have to say that this was the beginning of a series of mistakes. Mistake number two came rather quickly. The guys realized that their only option for salvaging the trip was to take a series of buses over three days, first north, then over the mountains into Argentina, and finally wrapping around the other side of the Andes so they could approach Mahadita from the east. Step one was jumping on a local bus from the airport to the main bus station in Santiago. And get to the bus station, jump off, and forget that we've left a huge duffel bag under a pile of other people's stuff on the bus, and the bus takes off. 
and we certainly can't do the expedition without a tent, without our double boots, all this sort of thing. So it's, it's, it's a huge rookie mistake. Mark jumped in a taxi to chase the local bus down, while Large stayed back with the rest of their stuff. So we're driving for miles, and then the taxi driver is right beside in the front of the bus, almost trying to cut off the bus, saying, hey, hey, you got to pull over, you got to pull over. And the bus driver's like, what the hell are you doing? I'm going to run you over. Eventually, the bus stopped, and Mark grabbed their duffel. Shortly after he got back to the bus station, he and Large met a man who introduced himself as Merlin the Magician. It was an odd encounter, and yet another hint that the journey they were taking was not going to play out as they had imagined. We're waiting in line, and we see this guy walking around, and, and he looks very unusual. First of all, he's wearing red rock climbing shoes, just walking around. Then he's got these very glittery neon lycra tights. And then he's got <laughs> this massive purple shaggy coat, like a bear coat. <laughs> he also has this kind of droopy seven dwarfs sort of cap on that looks like some kind of magician's thing. And then he, his face, I mean, it's just hair everywhere. He's this massive black and gray beard. And <laughs> he's standing in line to get on the bus. And we're looking at him, and he suddenly says, Hey, you guys Eclipse chasers? <laughs> Before we even have a chance to answer, he's shaking our hand really vigorously. He goes, I am. I've chased him all over the world. Did you know that eclipses are this indescribable spiritual power you experience? Did you know that they're intimately connected to ancient horoscopes? He said, it's stronger than crystals. It's stronger than pyramids. Can you believe that? It's stronger than ayahuasca. And then he goes in and talks us about a half an hour about Burning Man. Mark absolutely did not consider himself an eclipse chaser. Neither did Large, who only really joined the trip for the climbing. In fact, before they met Merlin, they only had a vague notion that there were people who spent much of their time and money traveling from one blackout to the next. Only later would the guys come to understand that there's a whole industry that serves eclipse junkies, with packaged tours complete with chartered buses and private concerts in the zone of totality. Before flying to South America, Mark had focused his eclipse research on the ancient beliefs surrounding the celestial event. He got really into it. Every culture has some kind of myth about why eclipses are happening. The Maori in New Zealand, they, you know, it's attacked from the demons. The Vikings believed that it was these two wolves eating each other. The Chinese thought it was a dragon that was devouring the sun. Actually, one of the ones I really like is the Shan of Vietnam thought eclipses were caused by a very hungry frog. One of the best, though, is Australian Aborigines thought that the moon and sun were husband and wife. And that a total eclipse was like coitus on a cosmic scale. <laughs> As Mark points out, many of the traditions surrounding the eclipses were violent. Some involved death. A lot of this came from people not fully understanding what was causing the sky to suddenly go dark or when it might end. Now, one of my favorite stories was about this Sumerian leader named Irshadan, and this is 600 BC. And he, he's like, you know what I'm going to do? Every time we have an eclipse, because I don't know if it's going to be permanent, I'm going to put a false king on the throne. Because he doesn't want to take the blame if the sun never comes back. He's like, this can't be on my shoulders, man. Because I know what will happen. <laughs> so he found this guy. Probably pulled him off the street, who knows. 
and said, hey, you want to be king? And of course, who doesn't want to be king? And Irshad, you know, basically just changed his clothes. It's very Shakespearean, right? He becomes the beggar on the street, wandering around. Of course, you know, the eclipses don't last that long. And after two or three minutes, it's quite clear that this eclipse, like all others, is going to end. So the king goes back, takes over his throne, and has the faux king executed. <laughs> Poor sucker. <laughs> On their bus rides, Mark started to get the feeling that in this eclipse story, he might be the sucker. Large and I are looking out the window, and I have to say the landscape looked a hell of a lot like Wyoming. High plains and dusty. And the thing is that started scaring us was windy. Like incredible wind. Winds that were rocking the bus. So I started having this sense of foreboding, to be honest, that we have bitten off way more than we can chew. When they finally made it to Las Flores, the town in the Argentinian desert that was their new planned starting point for an approach on Mahadita, he was feeling even less optimistic. We throw our bags off, and we are in a dust storm. The dust storm is so bad that we can't even open our eyes. We have to shade our eyes, and then we run over to the side of the gas station because the wind is so horrible. <laughs> and we were a little shocked, to be honest, because we, we can't even see where we are. As people come through, using my little Lonely Planet Spanish dictionary, I start asking people, what road can you take to go into the Andes to get up close to the Mahadita? First of all, none of them have an, any idea what Mahadita is. It's just another little bump on this spine of bumps that's outside this desert kind of western town, right? So we ask again and again and again, and eventually they say, you're going to have to talk to the cops. This is about the last thing that Mark and Large wanted to do, having had some bad experiences with the police in other countries. But they didn't really have a choice. So eventually we march over to their barracks, and we present ourselves and say, we're climbers. Uh, We're here to uh, climb this mountain, Mahadita, and we want to do it for the eclipse. It's kind of special. And they're like watching a telenova, and we're in this little tiny barracks room. They look at our heavily stamped passports, and they're just kind of like, whatever. We We don't really care about you guys. At this point, Mark played his last card. Using the barracks' internet connection, he pulled up some of his magazine stories about climbing Mount Everest and other big peaks. And so that, that's when they finally took us serious. And then they brought in uh, some kind of a commander who told us with no, basically no equivocation that you can't get up there. It's impossible. That road is closed. It's closed all winter. It's deep in snow, and there's nothing you can do. We'll be right back. At the top of the episode, we talked about Lake Hartwell Country, a region in the mountains of South Carolina that's one of the best adventure playgrounds anywhere. A giant reason for this is the Blue Wall, where the Appalachian Mountains drop suddenly more than 2,000 feet in elevation. Along these precipitous slopes, it rains more than 75 inches a year, creating a verdant rainforest, steep ravines, and as you might expect, lots and lots of waterfalls. This is the Jocassi Gorges, one of the most remote areas on the East Coast, with more than 40,000 acres of protected wilderness, two state parks, and a vast network of hiking trails. Here you can find black bears, bald eagles, peregrine falcons, and dozens of rare plants. The water cascading down these slopes makes its way to Lake Jocassi, one of the top scuba diving destinations in the southeast thanks to the crystal clear waters. As it happens, the lake also offers some of the best access to waterfalls, 
which you can reach by boating or kayaking along the lake's 75 miles of shoreline. And if you're going to Lake Hartwell country, you don't want to miss its namesake, Lake Hartwell, which offers 962 miles of shoreline. That's more than the coast of California. It's known for superb fishing and regularly hosts nationally renowned bass fishing tournaments. There's also boating and numerous camping opportunities. Learn more about this unique destination at LakeHartwellCountry.com. South Carolina is just right. Faced with what seemed like another trip-ending moment, Mark and Large refused to give up. Eventually, they convinced the commander in Las Flores to let them pay some of his soldiers to drive them up into the mountains in a jeep. They signed some papers absolving Argentina from any responsibility for their safety. That was a coup. That was one of the few coups of this whole trip, I have to tell you, because everything else starts to fall apart. Their next challenge was that the commander had been telling the truth. The road was snowed in. The soldiers took them only halfway to their planned base camp below Mahadita before deciding the snow was too deep to keep driving. Well, they just stopped the Jeep and threw our duffel bags out and said, good luck. Literally. Buenas suertes. <laughs> and, and we're at least 20 to 25 miles away from the base camp. And we've got a lot of gear. One of the funny things that one of the soldiers says to me is like, you're going to see how bad it is. And I'm kind of like, I'm a climber. What are you talking about? You don't know anything. And he said, no, the wind is seriously bad. It's like the devil, el diablo. Mark and Large slogged along for a few miles before making camp in the middle of the closed road. That night when they went to sleep, there wasn't a breath of wind. And about midnight, we hear this train, and we're like, what the, what the, there's this, it can't be a train. It's so loud. It's like having your ear right next to the tracks. And then the wind hits our tent. And the first gust almost tears our four-season expedition tent off the top of us. That was unbelievable. I mean, we were estimating the wind was probably 80 miles an hour. In the morning, they began the grueling process of ferrying their gear to the base of the mountain. The wind was directly in their face, and there was a foot of snow on the road, which made it impossible to carry everything at once. We've got to drop our pack weight to like 40 or 50 pounds and do carries. Carry up one day, drop it, come back down, carry up next day, drop it. But the wind is so fierce that the wind would knock us backwards, knock us on our backs when we're in a foot of snow with a 50-pound pack. They kept at it for three days, making excruciatingly slow progress. Mark eventually came to a harsh realization. There's no way they get to the top of Mahadita in time to see the eclipse, which was now just a few days away. Even worse, if they kept going, they'd miss the eclipse entirely because of their position in the shadow of the Andes. It was time for a big decision. I said, Large, we either can leave and catch the eclipse somewhere, or we can stay, we can climb this mountain, but it could take 10 days. And we'll summit, but we will have completely missed the eclipse. This shows Large's heart, I think, and this is probably why we call him Large, is that he knew how I was feeling after I explained this. He knew that I'd come down to see the eclipse from a high altitude. I hadn't come down just for this mountain. The eclipse did matter to me. To him, it didn't really. This was an expedition. Let's just climb the damn mountain. And I said, we either get to climb this mountain or we get to see the eclipse. We don't get both. What do you want to do? And he said, 
let's see the eclipse. And I know he did it entirely for me. That's, that's large in a nutshell. The guys beat a retreat, scoring a jeep ride from a military outpost back to Las Flores. There, they found a guy who was willing to rent them a Toyota Hilux, a tough truck about the size of a forerunner. We don't have maps. We don't have a GPS. We just head back into the Andes further north, thinking we're going to climb a peak. And they did. After banging along a two-track path that had large building multiple rock bridges over a stream, they car camped at 10,000 feet. The day before the eclipse, they scurried up loose scree to the top of an unnamed summit at about 16,000 feet. Suddenly, glory was at hand. For the day of the eclipse, their plan was to climb an even taller peak. You think, all right, we've salvaged this. We can't do Mahadita, but we're going to be high. We're going to climb a high mountain. We're going to be up at 16, 17, 18,000 feet. We're going to see the eclipse. It's going to be just like we planned. And then the wind returned with a fury. This time, it did destroy their tent. The fly was ripped right in half. And we get up that morning, and the, the Hilux is rocking in the wind. And, and we're screwed. Or maybe not. The eclipse was coming at 5 p.m., but the guys had gotten up well before dawn. They figured their only chance to witness the event was to get out of the mountains and onto the open plains. So now we got to drive at twice the speed going through these creeks. And um, let me just say that we did have to take that vehicle after the eclipse to an auto body shop. <laughs> they got down to Las Flores and with little time to spare, headed out to a bluff called Bella Vista. And as we get close to this area, we start running into these big camps uh, with like three or four dozen huge tour buses. And they're all fenced off and they've got guards and you've got to have a little ticket. So you can't get in and get the free beer and, and, <laughs> and get the concert and watch the eclipse because these people have all paid 10 grand to get there. They continued on to the end of the road to the free viewing area where locals had clustered. There's so many people on horses, walking, driving their trucks. There are some tour buses there, and they're all around us. It's just this phenomenon. And there's so many people that's raised this dust level, just like this haze of dust, red dust has risen up in the valley below the Andes. Everybody's waiting, and everybody's got their little kind of like 1950s eclipse glasses on, right? They're sitting on the top of their hoods. They got these little glasses on their two-year-olds. And as soon as the moon starts to eat the sun, everybody starts howling and clapping. We got a band going, and we got people playing brass instruments. We got our whipping it, hooping it up, like just like this is the party, right? And as soon as you got that complete, total darkness. Everything went silent. Everybody, everybody did not say a word. The babies didn't scream. The dogs didn't make a noise. I, we're around thousands of people. And you, you know, it was dead silence. And for two and a half minutes, everybody is just in awe of this extraordinary event. And then, as the sun starts to come back out, after two and a half minutes, just a sliver, right? Everybody starts clapping, like you're in this incredible opera. Like it's this planetary sort of entertainment. And it takes another half an hour for it to be over with. But 
there was this sense of uh, communion, I have to say. And I know that sounds kind of goofy, but when we were there, I felt like this is, uh, this is pretty incredible. And after the whole thing, I'm sitting there with Large, and we're kind of like, you know, pretty quiet. And I say, Large, do you think we're eclipse chasers? <laughs> and Large is like, hell no, we're failed mountaineers. <laughs> That was Mark Jenkins talking about his quest to see a solar eclipse at the top of the Andes. You can read his feature story about the journey in the June print issue of Outside Magazine, which will be out in early May. If you want to have it delivered to your doorstep, subscribe at outsideonline.com slash summer savings. This episode was produced by me, Michael Roberts, with music by Robbie Carver. This episode was brought to you by Lake Hartwell Country, a region in the mountains of South Carolina that's one of the best adventure playgrounds anywhere. Learn more about this unique destination at lakehartwellcountry.com. We'll be back next week.